We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. It's time to end Obamacare now. For the past eight years, we have been suffering under President Obama's ridiculous policies. The worst of which... Obamacare. And you know why it's bad. It raised premiums, it decreased patient choice, and it made people even more dependent on government. But when President-elect Trump takes office on January 20th, we can finally repeal Obamacare. But there are liberals in D.C. who are conspiring to save it. And the only way we can stop them is if we get grassroots activists like you to stand up to them and pledge to help President-elect Trump repeal Obamacare on day one. So stand with President-elect Trump and go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. Get involved. Help repeal Obamacare. If you don't act now, we won't be able to make a difference. If you want lower premiums, better health care, we need to repeal Obamacare on day one. And that's why you need to go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. It's time to take advantage of this historic opportunity and see how freedom works. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Well, greetings and welcome to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network for Tuesday night. Steve is uh, still on his uh, customary year-end vacation, getting some much-deserved R&R. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. Along for the ride with me is uh, Todd Erzin, Steve's web editor. You know, even when Steve is gone, you can still contact him and bother him. I'm sure he'd love that. Uh, you can email him, steve at stevedace.com. Find him on Facebook by searching for Steve Dace or on Twitter by searching for at Steve Dace Show. If you want to interact with Todd and I during the show, you can do that as well. At Dace Producer is uh, me on Twitter and at uh, Dace Online is Todd's Twitter handle as well. So for the next uh, couple of nights, uh, since Steve is gone, and usually when you turn, tune in to the Steve Dace Show, you want to hear Steve Dace. We're going to give you, give you the opportunity to do that. In the next couple of nights, we'll be featuring a couple of best-of interviews that Steve has done over uh, the last couple of uh, recent months, or two or three months in the past. And then we'll also have a, a special uh, Hour 3 presentation tonight and tomorrow night of uh, sermons that Steve has done uh, for his local church. He's on the preaching team at his local church, uh, and you'll get to hear those. We think they're uh, specifically applicable to you and uh, to the uh, nation, the culture at large, 
And so that's why we are doing that as well. But for the first couple of segments, so what Todd and I want to do, we want to do basically the nightly buzz because we're not just going to get uh, go through an entire show without talking about what's going on in the news, Todd. And so uh, I've been perusing everybody's uh, water coolers and breathing down their necks and trying to figure out what the heck they're talking about, and I've come up with some stories. So for, for the first at least segment or two, uh, what do you say we react? Uh, just knee-jerk uh, reactions to some stories. Yeah, it feels like warm-up calisthenics, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yes, I'll be doing yoga over in the studio. No. Uh, first story, nearly one quarter of Democrats say they blocked, unfriended, or stopped following somebody on social media after the election because of their political posts on social media. Fewer than one in ten Republicans and independents report eliminating people from their social media circle. Political liberals are also far more likely than conservatives to say they removed someone from their social media circle due to what they shared online, 28 to 8 percent respectively. 11 percent of moderates say they blocked, unfollowed, or unfriended somebody due to what they posted online. Only 5 percent of Americans say they're planning on spending less time with certain family members because of their political views. Democrats, however, are spending five times more likely than Republicans to say they're trying to avoid certain family members due to their political views, 10% to 2% respectively. The pattern among political independents mirrors the general population. The least tolerant sub-demographic measured in the poll was Democratic-leaning women. Are well, we surprised? All that. Let's take out that last sentence. That's mm -hmm. a that's a separate thing, uh, for a second. But everything else absolutely uh, mirrors my experience. I mean, we clearly we have uh, some uh, conservatives, some Christians, some Republicans, whatever, who are are better than others at making their case. That are uh, better at speaking truth than love, even when they are aggressive, are better at doing it in a, a civil nature. Um, but one thing, they're just not, they tend not to be afraid of a good old-fashioned fight. Yeah. And it's remarkable for the, the, the bloodlust that the left has to truly not only defeat their enemies, we certainly seek to defeat our ideological enemies, but to basically put them, they desire to put them in a leper colony. Uh, their capacity... To do so in the modern media world, social media, it is so diminished. They they just put them, they self-impose themselves mm -hmm. in their own leper colony because I think at some level they fundamentally understand how, if, if people know how to call their bluff on their emotional energy, they know that game is over on some level. Yep. And, and furthermore, just not wanting to be around family members who disagree with you, um, listen, this is... We, the further and further we get into progressivism, by definition, I, I, I say this without apology, we are delving into uh, levels of the, the gray area between sanity, sanity and mental illness mm -hmm. are just disappearing. I mean, they, they believe in things that are fundamentally mad. They believe in imaginary creatures. They accuse us of spaghetti monsters in the sky. The list of imaginary creatures that they believe in is quite longer than ours, if we have any at all. 
I would agree with that, and uh, I, I would also add that on the left, for true believers of progressivism, this is this this belief is all that they have. This is this is their worldview. This is existence to them. This is the air that they breathe. This is why you get so much madness because their, their worldview is not grounded in some transcendent truth. And so that's where you get flying spaghetti monsters. That's where you get these fairy tale beliefs that they uh, that they believe in, and that's what you also get here. When their worldview is rejected like it was on November 8th, they take that personally. They take that far more personally than, uh, than people who have uh, their worldview grounded on some sort of transcendent truth. They take it personally. This is like murder to them. That's why you get people like, what, what was the buzz story we talked about last week? The professor at some uh, college out in California talking about how this was an act of terrorism. Correct. That's why you get that. That, that. That's what makes sense. of It's it's insane, but at least that kind of explaining at least makes sense of why they act the way they do. It is, uh, it is a sight to behold, that's for sure. Next story. Following an investigation into the practice of fetal tissue transfer and federal laws governing the practice, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley is referring several Planned Parenthood affiliates and companies involved in fetal tissue t- transfers as well as the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, to the FBI and the Department of Justice for investigation and possible prosecution. Meanwhile, HBO's Girls star Lena Dunham recently uh, told fans of a wish to have an abortion as a means of becoming a pure political activist. Listeners to Miss Dunham's Women of the Hour podcast on December 15th heard the actor speak of her desire to become or better relate to the self-knowledge of women whose past includes abortion. She said, she said, One day when I was visiting a Planned Parenthood in Texas a few years ago, a young girl walked up to me and asked me if I'd like to be a part of a project in which women share their stories of abortion. The Blaze reported on Tuesday that she went on to say, I sort of jumped. I haven't had an abortion, I told her. I wanted to make it really clear to her that as much as I was going out and fighting for other women's options, I myself had never had an abortion, and I realized even then that I was carrying within myself stigma around the issue because she's never had an abortion. Let me go back to what I said on the previous topic. The line between sanity and mental illness is moving far closer to mental illness, and they're clearly you 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 can't even hand the car keys to these people anymore i mean they're that deranged and that's why what chuck, i i like that these stories are combined that's why chuck what trick grassley is doing is is, is so important mm-hmm. he is not going to simply take the insanity lying down if the if this woman is guilt-ridden because she hasn't had an abortion and feels like the just pointing that out to somebody is not brave. Again, we've gone so far. We didn't we talk about this yesterday? Yes, we did. Enough of the lie is safe, mm-hmm. rare, and legal. Yeah, you are a cult. This is what this is what pagan rituals looked like back in the day. Yeah, and I've said it before that, and it's been said before. This didn't um, you know, originate with me that. Abortion is just a modern-day version of, of child sacrifice. That's that's all it is. It is cult. It is paganism. And when you look at what the left is doing, and when you look at cults at large, usually they're ending if they do come to the end, which they often do and will do because most cults are self-destructive. The ending is not always pretty. 
and they usually end by dragging others down with them as well. That's why this ideology of progressivism, it can't be reasoned with. You can't share a country with these people. You can't, you can't do that. It's just not possible because they are not making it possible because of uh, the, the nature of a cult. So it has to be defeated. And uh, we've talked about this on the show multiple times. You are listening to The Steve Dace Show, saying Steve Dace, powered by the uh, conservative review on the Salem Radio Network. Uh, tonight and tomorrow night, a little bit different shows for you, Todd Erzin and myself, Aaron McIntyre, filling in for Steve. Uh, doing some nightly buzz at the top of the show. The rest of the show is some uh, best of old content and fresh content for you as well. We'll have more on the nightly buzz and the Steve Day show. When we come back, don't go anywhere. Listening to Steve Dace. You're listening to Steve Dace. Welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Doing some nightly buzz tonight with myself, Aaron McIntyre, and Todd Erzin. The rest of the show will go inside some of the best-loved songs of Christmas. We'll also hear an interview Steve did recently with Johnny Erickson Tata. And then you'll hear a sermon Steve preached to his local church on what Americans actually think about Christianity. That's coming up into Hour 3, but first, more nightly buzz. Next story, North Carolina lawmakers will meet on Wednesday, or will meet on Wednesday, for a special session to consider eliminating the state's so-called bathroom bill. The announcement came not long after the city of Charlotte abandoned its non-discrimination ordinance Monday. That helped spark the controversial statewide law, which put North Carolina at the center of a heated national debate over so-called transgender rights. North Carolina's governor-elect Roy Cooper said Monday that because of Charlotte's actions, state lawmakers would call a special session to vote on repealing the measure known as House Bill 2 or HB 2. Now, everything you heard right there is important because you get the full context of what is not being provided in a lot of mainstream media national headlines. This is not... And again, I'm making some, I will admit, I'm making some inferences on my own beyond what I've read here. But based on that, it it is clearly not a just a defeat. No, because they already, the, already repealed the, 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 the city bill. ordinance. This was contingent upon the city ordinance, which started the whole thing in the first place. And remember, this Because is, some guys on the city council, or and I presumably uh, girls on the city council as well, just think it's awesome that creepy dudes can... Go into bathrooms well, with your and daughters and wives and sisters. Remember the gist of it. That They started it, and they said every business owner within the city of Charlotte had to turn their bathrooms into this sort of open season. 
the state reacted and said, you know what, if you're a private business owner and you want to play that game, that's fine, but we're not going to force you to at the point of a gun. So what this is ultimately is a bunch of people realizing that uh, they're kind of tired of this fight and everybody's stepping back to their corner. But this is the end of the battle. This ain't the end of the war. Yeah, and I I would agree with that. But this is um, definitely not the way the Rainbow Jihad is used to these things going. There, you have to you have to admit they're used to people just completely bending over backwards to capitulate and acquiesce to whatever the heck that they want to do. This is different. Uh, this is not quite as as swift of a, of a um, decision or outcome, whatever this outcome is that the the, the the Rainbow Jihad is used to. And it's all because of uh, that lieutenant governor. His name is Dan Forrest in North Carolina. He was really the one the whole time who really championed this issue, who stood by it, who stood by it even when the heat was turned up, who stood by it when corporations and artists and uh, different sporting events were leading, leaving the state and just and, and he was made out to be the bad guy here, as well as the state's Republican legislature. So this is, uh, I, I hesitate to call this good because nothing when we're getting bathrooms wrong is good. But at the same time, uh, this is not the, the way that the Rainbow Jihad is, is used to these things going. Next story, President Obama is expected to take executive action to permanently ban new offshore drilling in federally owned waters off the Atlantic coast and the Arctic Ocean, according to sources familiar with the decision. Mr. Obama is expected to use a section of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, a 1953 law, to ban the drilling. The law includes a provision that allows a president to put certain waters off limits to oil and gas production. This is, he's got two things in mind. This is legacy building, saying mm-hmm. he, he he tried, he did something. And then this puts uh, Donald Trump and the conservative Congress, uh, well, but Congress won't have anything to do with it uh, because, as is, has been uh, Obama's habit, he has done a lot of things uh, without Congress. But this at least puts Trump in the position of having to repeal it and then having the, the media get to pile on him for not being a friend of the environment. So that's the game here. And I would agree with that. I mean, this is... Executive action is executive action. I saw a headline uh, somewhere today. It might have been uh, someplace like Breitbart, I don't remember, which is um, taboo now around these parts, about uh, President Obama warning Donald Trump not to use um, executive action too much. This is just, again, this is just ridiculous. This is political theater, and that's all that executive action is at this point, and I think it has been for most of the time, depending on what Congress did during... uh, uh, Barack Obama's reign in the White House. Uh, this is executive actions really can't do a whole lot of anything unless they're respected unlawfully by Congress. I think this is more of, of that. MTV News is facing backlash for a video released Monday that offers New Year's resolutions for white guys who apparently need to clean up their acts in 2017. The video, titled 2017 Resolutions for White Guys, features several young non-white actors and at least one fellow white guy who basically paint white men as racist, clueless, and privileged. First off, try to recognize that America was never great for anyone who wasn't a white guy, a woman says in the video. Wow, so so you get to speak for all minorities with boilerplate like that? 
That sounds pretty racist. They're a protected class, Todd. Uh, it's the and, 21st century. And furthermore, listen, we learned a lot about garbage uh, this last year, Peppy the Frog, alt-right sites. There's no doubt if you get online, you can find some stupid white people saying awful things um, about uh, minority groups. But you know what? Uh, most of America still doesn't know about those places. They never see them. I'll tell you what, a lot more people uh, know about MTV know. And the mainstream media places that regularly spout this racist garbage, I say with absolute confidence, you, you get far more overt racism coming from the left in places that most most Americans see at some point in their life, places they travel mm -hmm. through in the media, than you do from the right. This is leftist racist filth. Agreed. This is, and as I... Somewhat uh, jokingly said earlier, this is this is protected classes, so they can they can tell us what to do, uh, whatever to do. And why is it that it's always the white uh, Anglo uh, man, uh, especially the Christian, uh, the white Christian straight Anglo man, which white and Anglo are the same thing? Why is it always us um, that uh, get the brunt of this? Um, well, it's it's racism. It's pure and simple. This is racism. What you're looking at right here. This is no different than any other definition of racism. Uh, I think that you get on any pure definition of racism because there, as the video says, resolutions for white guys. If a bunch of white guys had made the same video, 2017 resolution for black guys, what would the left be saying right now? What would we be saying right now? We would be saying it's racist, and so would the left as well, except that they'd be screaming it as well. Well, uh, that does it for the Nightly Buzz uh, for tonight. Uh, for the rest of the show, you'll be hearing a best of uh, interview here in just a few minutes that Steve recently had with Johnny Erickson Tata. Also be talking about uh, some of the best loved uh, songs of Christmas and the stories behind them, as well as a, a message from uh, Steve's local church that he preached a few months back. All that and more coming up on the Steve Day Show. Don't go anywhere. Listening to Steve Dace. Rules for Patriots, the Steve Day Show. Back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network, as some of you know, because. I've been a proud papa bragging on the air. My uh, oldest daughter, Anna, uh, ended up beating out to 60 other talented youngsters for one of the starring roles in our local Playhouse's production of Willy Wonka. And uh, their uh, performances debuted over the weekend. And uh, during one of the Sunday matinees, uh, her knee just gave out. And so we had to rush her to a specialist. And, of course, she's thinking of all the times for an injury to happen. I've worked so many months for this. And... And did I blow out my knee? Did I tear something? Am I going to need surgery? Am I going to be out for the rest of the performance schedule? And thankfully, it's just a hyperextension, something that we don't think a few days of rest and ice, according to the specialist we took her to, Dr. Carlson. We don't think that uh, uh, it would require more than that. But, I mean, she was in tears because uh, this was, you know, she's uh, she's not even 16 yet, and 
Uh, her mom and I have done as much as we possibly could to both uh, introduce her to what the real world is like, but also to protect her from it until the time comes that she has to face it as an adult. This was the first thing in her life where she faced some real adversity, something she had worked hard for, and something went wrong that had, that had nothing to do with anything she had done wrong or somebody, something that somebody had done wrong to her. But, you know, we were talking about it to, over, today at lunch, and I just mentioned, you know, honey, we live in a fallen world. Sometimes bad things happen to people that, are, that don't deserve for bad things to happen to them. And yes, in the grand scheme of things, this is not a life and death tragedy or uh, a natural disaster that people may face, um, or, and it's not a permanent condition, but um, it's really the first time she's had to learn that you can develop character through suffering, even in this case, which may seem like a minor, a minor thing to you know a lot of you, but to a 15-year-old girl, and this is what she's been working for for months now, this was a major situation. And I, I bring this up because if there's one topic that our final guest here tonight knows a thing or two about, it is the topic of suffering, something that a lot of Americans seek to avoid at all costs because we're humans, and a lot of humans seek to avoid it at all costs. And Johnny Erickson Tata joins us to talk about the Beyond Suffering Bible. And I want you to know, Johnny, it is a pleasure and an honor, really, to have you with us tonight on the Steve Day Show. Thank you for being with us. Oh, absolutely. And Steve, I would just love to send your daughter a copy of the Johnny book. Uh, Maybe you could email me her name and address. I'd love to um, jot her a note of encouragement. Uh, we will definitely have, I'll have my producer, Aaron, uh, I'll have my people get with your people, and we would be honored to make that happen. And I know, you know, what I'm telling is a trite suburban story compared to what you faced at an age very similar to my own daughter's. But in her life, this is the first time that something she's worked hard for, it's been threatened to be taken away from her, not because of anything she's done wrong or some act of injustice, but because we live in a fallen world. And these are things that I think a lot of people... We struggle to find justice in these situations, Johnny. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, her story, your daughter's story, is really my story. It's so many people's story. I was 17 years old. I was heading off to college. And just two weeks before I uh, was ready to start my first semester, I took, some, I took a dive in the Chesapeake Bay into what ended up being very shallow water. I broke my neck. I, I became a quadriplegic. And like your daughter... It's like, oh, my goodness, my life has been altered. It's been changed. And it was at first very discouraging, very depressing, and actually very despairing. But thank the Lord there were Christian friends who had good counsel, kind of like the counsel you gave your daughter. And that made all the difference. What is it about us that we seek to find ways around suffering rather than ways through it? Well, we live in America. We live in a place where everything um, is all about our comfort and our ease and our convenience. We hate suffering. We, we drug it. We try to escape it, avoid it. We divorce it. We institutionalize it. We try to surgically exorcise it. We want to do everything but actually live with it. And yet the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And in Romans chapter 5, uh, we're told that suffering um, produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope should not disappoint us. You know, I'm coming up on 50 years 
uh, living as a quadriplegic in my wheelchair as a result of that diving accident when I was a teenager. And not once has God been mean to me, not once, because this has happened, that I might not rely on myself, but on God. That's a direct quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. And it's the, it's the thing that we Christians have to face about suffering. God wired this world to be difficult. We'll have more with Johnny Erickson Tata on the Beyond Suffering Bible in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? You'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your beliefs. And there are progressive radical liberal phone companies spending tens of millions of dollars to remove conservative leaders from office and fight for liberal social change. So what's a patriot like you to do? Well, you can start by calling my friends at Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. You get the same quality service, competitive prices, and you get to help causes you believe in. Call Patriot Mobile right now at 800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code STEVE at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to two lines. Call 1-800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code STEVE. Never attack when you're not willing to kill. This is Steve Dace. Joined by the one and only Johnny Erickson Tata here on the Steve Day Show, talking about just in time for Christmas, the Beyond Suffering Bible. How do we find meaning in suffering? To those who challenge our faith by saying, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? It doesn't make any sense. It seems pointless. It seems senseless. As someone that didn't grow up in the church, uh, came to faith well into my adult life, fancied myself uh, into philosophy and a bit of an intellectual, which means I really wasn't. But um, I had a lot of these various um, skepticisms and impulses within my own worldview. And and one of the final things that got me to cross this line of faith beyond just mere repentance or wanting to be forgiven for the things I had done wrong, but where I, I really began to embrace this as a way of life is when I intellectually considered the proposition, Johnny, I have it backwards, that the reality is if the gospel story is not true, then then the world is senseless. Then it is pointless. The only worldview, and I, I've practically studied them all, and the only one that really truly answers why we are the way we are, why the world is the way it is, and what can be done about it, is the biblical one. Absolutely. And I could sum up my biblical worldview on suffering with these simple words. God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. He hates spinal cord injury. He hates autism and Alzheimer's. 
he he hates um, multiple sclerosis and arthritis, but he permits these things to accomplish something that he loves, and that is shaping Christ in us, the hope of glory. I mean, look at the cross real quickly, Steve. I mean, God hated the crucifixion of his own son, no doubt. It involved torture. It involved murder. It involved injustice. And we look at all these things and think, how can any of that be God's will? Uh, Injustice, murder, torture, the suffering of God's own son, yet Acts chapter 4, verse 28 tells us that God permitted these things to accomplish something higher and better, and that was salvation for the world. God permitted the crucifixion of his own son because he loved something better, and that was our salvation. And in the same way, God permitted this accident. I know he didn't like it. He sure hates spinal cord injury and all kinds of diseases and disabilities, but he allows them, he permits them, so that we might be changed. We might be transformed. And uh, not, not only did the world's worst murder back at the cross become the world's only salvation, but this wheelchair is the prison that has set me free. Hmm. Some people may ask, why do we need a Bible with, with, with notes and articles targeting suffering? And here's some numbers that I think it, it, it probably point out the target audience to this. One in six Americans dealing with chronic health conditions. 10 million people a year experience some form of serious mental illness. One out of five people in the United States live with some form of physical disability. 82 million-plus Americans suffer from disability or chronic illness. Roughly 65 million Americans are providing care for someone with disability or chronic illness. That's a lot of people that need to make sense of suffering, Johnny. Oh, absolutely. And most of those people, Steve, most of those people like me, like when I was first injured, They know that the Bible probably contains answers to their plight. They just have no idea where to look. And there's hardly a cul-de-sac in America that doesn't have somebody impacted by disability, from cancer patients to stroke survivors to the elderly to parents who've had a child diagnosed with a disability. No matter what the heartbreak, the reason that Johnny and Friends partnered with Tyndale Publishing to put together this special edition of God's Word called the Beyond Suffering Bible is that we wanted to make it accessible for people who have these tough medical conditions, people who deal with chronic pain. We wanted them to have a Bible where they could open it and know that they could run right to the passages that would give them hope, encouragement, that would bolster their spirits and strengthen their faith. This Bible contains uh, articles about chronic pain, about caregiving. It contains articles about accidental pain management addiction, pain med addiction, and it contains all kinds of other resources that would be so helpful for those parents of special needs children who are struggling with the school system and sibling rivalry. This is a Bible that speaks directly to those people, and I'm very excited about it. Final question. You referenced this earlier, but of course, this is the Advent season. This is the Christmas season, and and this is when we commemorate the birth of God's Son, who came here to be our suffering servant, who came here to suffer on our behalf. And there is meaning here in that suffering. I mean, and you look at uh, what he had to endure for us at the cross, 
this and and what he had to endure for us with the unspeakable torture that you just uh, that you just spoke about that there and, and that is a reminder there's a lot more to this story than just a babe born in a manger isn't there oh yes from the very onset of his life christ identifies with our weakness christ identifies with our suffering and so the point is steve how dare i cling to the sins that nailed my savior to the cross um, in my weakness, I might be tempted to complain about my quadriplegia, but I don't dare complain. I don't dare foster anxieties or doubts against God. I don't dare defame his good character. When I think of all that he endured on my behalf, from the moment that he was born on the, in the cradle and then suffered on the cross, um, I have a Savior who's with me. He is God with me. He's Emmanuel. He gets it. He resonates with, with uh, the need to find hope in suffering. So he's a, knowing Jesus is ecstasy beyond compare, and it really is worth anything to be his friend. The Beyond Suffering Bible, it is available at uh, bookstores across the country. Johnny Erickson Tata, it has been an honor having you with us here tonight. Merry Christmas to you. God bless, and I hope a lot of people uh, grab, this, uh, grab this Bible. Okay, blessings on you, Steve. All right, take care. You're listening to Steve Dace. his finger on the button of truth put the finger down it's steve dace back here on the steve dace show powered by conservative review on the salem radio network you know we've had an ugly political year and that means the word refugee for so many now has a negative connotation and and we understand uh, what happens when you don't vet people properly. You import them into your culture. We're seeing what's happening in Europe as an example. But that doesn't mean there's still not uh, really a humanitarian crisis happening throughout the Middle East. And that's why this Christmas we are partnering with Heart for Lebanon. We, we want to take the gospel to those innocent children caught in the crosshairs of terrorism and being ravaged by war right there where they live. We want to take the gospel to them. We want to take it right to children like Manny. Like so many children, violence was all Manny and his brother have ever known. The war in Syria forced his family to flee Lebanon, but for Manny, the war that was going on inside his home was even worse. Denise, the director at Heart for Lebanon's Beirut Hope Center, explains. He was crying, he was bleeding, and he told me that he's been crying. It was wintertime, it was raining. His shoes had a hole and he didn't want his feet to get wet, so he kept on crying. And his dad was like, 
we can't, you know, you have to wear the shoes, go wear it. And he didn't want to wear it, and they want to wear it. And finally, his dad lost it. But he couldn't control himself, so he kept on hitting him until he was bleeding and was sent to school. The abuse that Manny was receiving from the hand of his own father, coupled with all that this little boy had experienced in Syria, turned him into one of the most aggressive students we've ever seen at the Hope Center. When he threatened other students with a knife on the playground, Denise was faced with the difficult decision to remove him from our school. But Heart for Lebanon went into action, reaching out in God's love to Manny and his family. The change in their lives has been remarkable. The abuse at home has stopped, and Manny, once an aggressive, mean-spirited young boy, is learning the violin, his life transformed by the gospel. Not only he became not aggressive, not only he's becoming, he's volunteering in our children's program with his brother, giving so much love and care to children that are in our centers. Your gift of $98 will help Heart for Lebanon bring the gospel to 18 refugee kids just like Manny. Be a part of rescuing these children for Christ before someone else captures them for evil. Please give now. And thank you for being as generous as you can. I've never thought I will be able to come to Lebanon and learn violin. I thank the Lord for that. Your one-time gift of $98 is going to reach 18 children like Manny with the gospel. Call now, 844-441-9966, 844-441-9966, or you can click on the banner on my website at stevedace.com. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Hour two of the Steve Dace Show on a Tuesday night is underway. Minus the Steve Dace part. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, along with uh, Todd Erzin. And so tonight we begin part one of an interview I've been looking forward to for a while. For the last few weeks, ever since we had our Christmas plans kind of firmed up, on our guest line right now for part one of a two-part interview series that we're going to be doing here this week while Steve is out, is a guy by the name of Ace Collins. Now, Ace is a prolific author. He's written scads of books, uh, but he is such a great storyteller. And two of the bo- two of my favorite uh, of Ace's books have to do with stories behind some of the great traditions and some of the great songs of Christmas. And Ace, it is a pleasure to uh, have you on the Steve Dace Show tonight. I've been following you ever since I've been in uh, started my career in radio. Five years ago, and you're one of the best storytellers, especially for the topics that we're going to be discussing tonight and tomorrow night. So all that is to say, I've built you up a lot here, so you, you got to deliver, man. Well, we're in a situation where it's the most wonderful time of the year. There's no doubt about that. When we talk about Christmas, we talk about a time where 
optimism to a large degree reigns. Uh, we tear down fences and we build bridges. It's a time that we look around and we see things that I've always called Christmas a time machine. The things we see take us back to a time. In some cases, they wipe away 60, 70 years for people who are older, and, and, and they hear the voices and they they smell the smells of Christmas uh, when they were young. They can an ornament on a tree may take them back to remembering their grandmother, and suddenly those people are very much alive, and they remember what they did to them. Songs on the radio that have been played for generations wipe away the years and, and restore memories of people and places that would have been lost if they had not taken place at Christmas. You know, you, when you talk about the songs of Christmas, think of the power of this season to basically give an artist almost immortality. Uh, Dinah Shore is a classic example of somebody who charted over 400 times, one of the biggest recording stars of the middle of the last century, yet she never had a Christmas hit. So we don't play Dinah Shore music anymore. In a way, she has forgotten in her significant contributions to America, music and entertainment have been forgotten. But even though he had far, far fewer charting songs, Perry Como, is played each and every year because of his various Christmas hits. Same is true with Bing Crosby. The the people that that are really iconic in the recording world from 60, 70, and 80 years ago, people we still think about, we think about because they landed a Christmas chart topper. And so in that respect, Christmas also gives artists an opportunity to live on well past the time that their music music should have faded out. So it, it's a very unique time of the year. And once again, I call it a time machine because it, the songs come back, the traditions come back, um, right. and greet us each and every year, and it's things that we can pass on. If you ask a college class, which I spend a lot of time with college classes, you know, what their favorite version of White Christmas is, they're going to tell you Bing Crosby mm-hmm. is their favorite version. And by the way, Seventy-five years ago, this Christmas Day, is when Crosby debuted White Christmas on his radio show, and it was the first time it was ever heard outside of Irving Berlin playing it for Crosby when he was going through the music uh, that would be in Crosby's movie Holiday Inn. I still believe that White Christmas has become the monumental song that it has become and the monumental hit that it has become mainly because of it being released three weeks after Pearl Harbor. Right, and we're talking with Ace Collins here. And Ace, I want to get into some of these specifics, some more of these specific songs that you've written about in your book, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. You do have a new book out right now. It's called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and you hit on that a little bit. But before we get into your book, uh, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. Tell us a, a little bit about a, a little bit about your new book, uh, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year. The Most Wonderful Time of the Year is a great book to buy, and you could even and give away as a gift. I think it, 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 it's a devotional book that goes through 31 days in December. It gives you some insights into history and of music and other things. But what it does really is it points out, I think, through very subtle uh, stories and through very subtle devotionals that Christmas would be insignificant without Easter. Uh, Easter is the reason we celebrate Christmas. Um, Christmas may be the far bigger holiday on a worldwide basis in the United States. It's a much larger holiday than Easter is. But Christ's birth means nothing if there's not Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. 
And so it ties the two holidays together. And in tying, tying the two holidays together, I think it does put the emphasis on <clears throat> the significance of the light coming into the world on that first Christmas day over 2,000 years ago. And so in that respect, it's a unique devotional book. There's also recipes and gift ideas and other things in it, but mainly it's a 31-day it's a devotional book that allows us to maybe get away on a daily basis from being overwhelmed by Christmas and, and, and the Christmas holidays, and I think embrace what Christmas should and could mean to all of us. And so that was the purpose in writing our eighth Christmas book, and it was just a situation where I'd done these devotionals for years in, in smaller groups, and so it was time, I think, to share them with, with others. Somebody wrote a review on Amazon the other day, and there was one line in the review on the new book, uh, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, that probably has meant more to me than any of the lines I've ever read in my reviews or, or awards, like the Christie Award and other things that I've won over the years. The, the line was this in describing the book. It's as good as warm milk and cookies. That is, uh, that's quite the compliment, especially especially if you live in the upper Midwest, like uh, where we do, where this show originates, and it's been, you know, and, and single think, digit temperatures. Everyone, you know, I wish I'd written that line, because I think everybody can, can honestly associate with that line and understand what they're talking about. So I think it's a special book. I think it's a great book to buy and give to others, and I think it's a book that will come back each and every Christmas. And, and I've been already told by people who have read it that they'll be reading it every every day in December for the rest of their lives. And, and that's kind of a nice compliment, too, as well. But okay. we're talking about Christmas, and we're talking about song, mm -hmm. and we're talking about <clears throat> the American Christmas. And when you look at the American Christmas, and you're looking at everything the American Christmas is supposed to be, all of that imagery was really originated in a song written for Thanksgiving, and that was Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells was an assignment a preacher gave his son in Medford, Massachusetts, and he said, I need you to write a song that's kind of fun for a children's choir at a Thanksgiving ceremony. And so this kid could not come up with anything to write until he went on Mystic Lane and watched a bunch of teenage boys trying to impress girls by racing their sleds against each other. They sang Jingle Bells for the very first time on that Thanksgiving um, service and and. It was so popular that the people in the church there in town asked the children's choir to sing it again at Christmas. Wow. People from New York and Boston who came into Medford to celebrate Christmas that year heard the song and thought it was a Christmas song. It went back and immediately became a Christmas hit. This was right about the time America really started celebrating Christmas in the 1840s. So it was a hot time for Christmas. It had gone from a holiday of drunken revelry and, and children and 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 women staying home, and Congress being open every Christmas day, and and not re in the United States not even recognizing the holiday till, you know, it became, and we'll talk about that on the tradition segment, a, a holiday for children, and and so here you have this imagery that is found in Jingle Bells that is, if you think about it, is nothing more than an 1840s Beach Boys song about mm -hmm. racing cars. Okay, if you really think about it, impressing girls, but this imagery inspired Courier Ives and others to create a Christmas that was filled with snow and bells and, and sleds and horses and the imagery that we see in everything from movies like Holiday Inn or uh, Christmas in Connecticut, which is one of my favorites, 
that originated really with Jingle Bells. There wasn't that imagery of Christmas until Jingle Bells, a Thanksgiving song, gave it to us. And I've always called Jingle Bells the most the most famous Thanksgiving song in the world. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Ace Collins. He is the author of numerous books, including his most recent, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, A Countdown to Christmas. We're talking right now with him about his book, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. And Ace, when we come back from the break here in a few minutes, I want to ask you about God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. It's a song that we hear quite a bit, but what the heck does that mean? We'll discuss that next with Ace Collins here on the Steve Dace Show, minus Steve Dace. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, filling in. We'll have more in just a few minutes. Listening to Steve Dace. We don't play for a team, we fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. Mannheim Steamroller with their iconic version of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. We're talking with Ace Collins. He's an author of numerous books, including the one we're talking about tonight, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. And Ace, um, that's, that uh, song is so iconic for this time of the year, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. But what's the story? What's the real story behind that song? Go back about six centuries in England, and uh, you have to understand that the only churches that really opened their doors at Christmas uh, during that time were the Lutheran churches and the Catholic churches. And, and so most churches did not, they ignored Christmas altogether until about the 1840s. And so the, the songs that were written about Christmas were not written to be sung in church, they were written to be sung in homes. And there was a peasant during this period of time, uh, 14, 1500, who created God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Um, as I was growing up, it kind of confused me, because why would God want happy people to sleep? And that's what this song sounds like. But once you understand the language of the times, the song does take on new meaning. As a matter of fact, we should probably sing it a little differently than we do. The word rest also means make or keep. So by changing that one word to what the writer surely intended, it would be God make you marry, gentlemen, or God keep you merry, gentlemen. And that makes a tremendous difference in the meaning of the song. But there's also the word merry. Now, merry, merry meant happy during that time. Don't get me wrong. But it's the, the fact that the happy is a different happy than we think about in today's culture is why the British, even though they've forgotten why, say happy Christmas rather than merry Christmas. Because to be merry in, in the period of time that this song was written, uh, to be fully happy, to be, you had to be secure. To be secure, you had to have some type of power. Most people did not. They were powerless. And, and therefore, they had a in, very insecure life. They were poor. Uh, to a large degree, their life was a struggle. If you were a merry man, 
You were someone who, who people not only respected, but they feared. You were somebody who had enough in the way of provisions and money to be secure. Merry people, therefore, were people who were very secure people, people who, who had been, for lack of a better word, blessed. Um, they didn't have the same worries that the common person did. I mean, you know, merry old England, the most powerful country in the, on the planet. Robin Hood and his merry men. These were very powerful men who, basically speaking, were very, very well respected. Well, so let's imagine what's a word you could substitute that, that would talk about England being powerful or Robin Hood, you know, and his men being feared and, and, and being powerful. Probably the best word in a, in a modern context would be mighty. And so we probably should be singing God rest ye merry gentlemen is God make you mighty gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ your Savior was born on Christmas Day. And so back then, when they said Merry Christmas, they were wishing you a Christmas. Or they were wishing you a, a Christmas where you would be secure, would not have worries, and would be blessed by financial reward. Talking with Ace Collins about his book, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. Ace, let's go to one that's, uh, let's jump around here a little bit, one that's quite a bit newer than uh, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Merry Did You Know. Mary, did you know, Mark Lowry was writing a, uh, what I call bridges between a living Christmas tree performance in his, in his home church in Houston, Texas. And, and by bridges, he would do songs, and then he would write elements of Scripture, maybe adapted into more modern language that told the story of Christ's birth. And so they were telling it both through words and through music. And he got to thinking... Uh, as he wrote this, about what it would have been like to have been Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he wondered exactly how much of the future that she had been privy to. Did she see all of the different things that that were going to happen to Christ? And, and so in his mind, he became a reporter who was asking Mary questions. And that morphed into him not working on what he was supposed to be working on, which was with the bridges, but working on a poem. He had that poem, which he realized was a song once he finished, for about two or three years until he ran into a harmonica player-songwriter who was finally able to give it life in the way of music. And they turned it over to a country songwriter, a singer who was hard at that, hot at that time, Kathy Matea, and she released it, and it became iconic in, in, very, very quickly. Within a decade, it was probably one of the most powerful songs um, that had been released in the last part of the last century. And Christmas songs, there have been hundreds of thousands of Christmas songs written. There are thousands of new ones written each and every year. For a song to make it, it has to either come on, come into play at a time when the country or the world is very insecure and people cling to it for security, or it has to have a new viewpoint. And this particular song was the first song ever written that really... Uh, defined what it must have been like to carry the Son of God. And I think because of its unique unique viewpoint and the masterful lyrical work that Lowry did when he wrote the song, it has become a powerful, powerful new look at a 2,000-year-old story. There is a, a bookend, if you will, to that song as well, because Skip Ewing, not reacting to Mark Lowry's song at all, but because of coming from a divorced 
home, Skip Lewing, Ewing, a country music songwriter himself, wrote a song called It Wasn't His Child, which was taken from jo- Joseph's viewpoint. If you put both of those songs together, they're two of the most unique songs written in the last hundred years about Christmas, and they both give us things to think about that probably no one in the last 2,000 years has thought about that. Um, and that's the emphasis so much on the child, we forget about the parents. And so this really puts both the parents into perspective, those two songs. Do. That is that is uh, so interesting, and it's amazing. These songs that we love, and this, these songs that we think that we know, it seems... It's uh, amazing to hear these backstories and these complex backstories as well. I, I know, at least for me, when I think of Mark Lowry, I think of a comedian. And I, I don't really think of the guy who wrote the song, Mary, Did You Know, one of the more iconic uh, modern Christmas carols, if you will. And, and these stories are so enriching because there's so much more to these songs and these words than just as uh, you know, songs or uh, musical notes on a page or words on the page. There is so much more of a story, and that's what we're talking about with Ace Collins, the author of uh, dozens of books, including a new one called "The Most Wonderful Time of the Year," and the one we're concentrating on uh, this evening on the Steve Day Show: uh, "Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas." And Ace, uh, when we come back, I want to hit on uh, another older song, "Oh Holy Night." There is an interesting story behind that uh, individual song as well that I'd like to hit on when we come back. Again, you're listening to The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We'll have more in just a few minutes. Listening to Steve Dace. For such a time as this, Steve Dace. That's Gary Chapman's uh, version of Oh Holy Night, one of the uh, more classical or classic uh, Christmas songs, if you will. And that's the topic of what we're talking uh, with Ace Collins about this evening. He's a prolific author of many, many books, including stories behind the best-loved songs of Christmas. And uh, Ace, uh, give us some background on Oh Holy Night. Most songs have one story. Oh Holy Night has four great stories behind it. Um, a parish priest asked one of his uh, one of his members of his church to write a poem for a Christmas Eve Mass about 180 years ago or so in France. And this man went to work on writing this poem, and he wrote it on a carriage ride to Paris. When he got to Paris, he realized he had written not just a poem, but a song, but he needed someone to set it to music. He went to a friend of his who was an opera composer and read the poem to this man, and the man said, it's beautiful, but I am not the man who needs to write the music to this song. Well, the songwriter leaned upon him and leaned upon him and leaned upon him until he finally agreed to do it. And he delivered this incredible music that you heard that goes with 
this these lyrics that are just so timeless. And he brought it back, and the church was overwhelmed, and they sang it that night. And within a decade, O Holy Night had become a standard that was sung throughout um, France on Christmas Eve and at Christmas Eve Masses. It, then, ironically enough, the church kicked the song out of Catholic ceremonies, and they kicked it out for being too secular. Now, that, that would... If you listen to the lyrics of Holy Night, you wonder, how did this happen? Well, they found out the man who had written the music was Jewish, and they simply didn't want a song that was partially inspired and written by a Jew to be in church. And so it was kicked out of church, but the French people kept singing it. It was translated into English, and it was brought to America, not as a Christmas song, but as a part of the abolitionist movement. Now, that may sound strange to some people, but I was listening to the song be sung beautifully in church yesterday, and there is a verse that uh, echoes why it was brought to the United States. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his, his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. So throughout the United States, it was used as a song by the abolitionists to attempt to convince people to free the slaves. Wow. After the Civil War, another interesting story of this song happens. In 1871, in the midst of the Franco-Prussian War, a Frenchman jumps out of a foxhole and starts singing O Holy Night. He's answered by a German singing Silent Night. The two sides stop their fighting and for 24 hours celebrate Christmas. This happened again, by the way, in, in World War uh, I, but with different songs. But this was the first time a war had ever been stopped by a Christmas song. And so in that respect, A Holy Night in 1879 brought about peace on earth, at least for a little while. And then I think the song, that, the song story that is most haunting about this happened in 1906 in the United States. A man named Reginald Fessenden, he was 33 years old, he was a university professor, and he was bound and determined to do what is, was considered impossible at the time. And that is create a machine powerful enough to transmit the human voice. Wireless machines up until this time, in the way of radio, had only been able to transmit Morse code. Now imagine, you have been told that it's impossible. Marconi said this, others have said this, to transmit a human voice. And yet on Christmas Eve, 1906, Fessenden sits down at something that he has built, picks up a microphone, and starts to read the second chapter of Luke, the story of Christmas. People I... who are listening for Morse code in weather bureaus, on ships, in newsrooms, in train stations, suddenly hear this man's voice, rather than the dot, dot, and the dash, dash. He then, after he finishes reading the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter, picks up his violin, and the very first song ever played on the radio was O Holy Night. And, of course, isn't that ironic, because it has been the way that music has been introduced to the masses really ever since. Just some more astounding stories and backgrounds behind some of uh, our most favorite uh, Christmas songs. We're talking with Ace Collins about his book specifically, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. 
One more segment、uh, for this part of the interview. Tomorrow night we'll be talking about some of the traditions behind、uh, Christmas and stories behind those traditions. We'll have more with Ace Collins in just a couple minutes. You're listening to Steve Dace. Truth, justice, and the way America should be—the Steve Day Show. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Back on the Steve Day Show with Ace Collins. He's the author of a lot of books, including a few of my favorites for this time of the year. Stories behind the best loved songs of Christmas. Is what we're talking about tonight, and we've just got one more segment to talk about some of the background and, and stories behind some of these best loved songs of Christmas. Let's go、uh, next to the Christmas song, Ace. What's some of the background on that one? Well, Mel Torme、uh, and a writing buddy were attempting to create a musical score in Hollywood in 1946. It was in the summer; it was the hottest day of the year, and both of them were in Bermuda shorts and T-shirts. They had stripped off their regular shirts and were drinking lemonade and sitting around a piano and getting nowhere because of how hot it was. And they started remembering their childhoods in New York and New England. And just for grins, as Torme said, we came up with lines that、uh, about those Christmas times, like. You know, yule logs and chestnuts roasting on an open fire,、right. and, and snow and other things. He said, "We weren't really trying to write a song. We were just trying to stay cool." But in the process of looking at their ideas from Christmas's past, they realized they were writing a Christmas song.、And、the interesting thing about it was that once they finished, they realized that they had something special.、Uh, they didn't know what to name it. I mean, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire was kind of a stupid name. They thought. So they just called it the Christmas song, and they decided, well, we got to go share this with somebody. Well, that's when the debate began. began. Torme wanted to give it to Nat King Cole, his good friend. The other writer wanted to give it to Bing Crosby. They went back and forth, and finally, Torme convinced them to go to Nat King Cole's house. They gave it to Nat King Cole. He recorded it. The record company once again weighed in and said it's a great song for Nat King Cole, but why don't we give it to Crosby? The reason was that African Americans were not played on certain radio stations across the country, and it, and so they were afraid that they would lose sales based on the fact that throughout the South, in particular, in some places in the Southwest, that Nat King Cole's record would not be played on most radio stations. But when that song was released in November, late October, early November of of that year, 1946, it became a monster hit. And in a sense, Nat King Cole, before Jackie Robinson ever broke the color barrier in、uh, baseball, he broke the color barrier in in Christmas music. And Nat King Cole introduced the first Christmas hit by an African American. And ironically enough, Mel Torme, who wrote this. Extraordinary Christmas song was Jewish, and so it's a unique marriage of songwriter and an artist that opened the doors for many other people to get involved、uh, with writing Christmas music and also singing Christmas music. So, from a historical standpoint in the United States, it's a pretty important、uh, historical 
uh, song as well as Christmas song. And by the way, uh, outside of White Christmas, the Christmas song has probably been recorded more than any other song ever written. There are, are songs like Silent Night that have been sung more. Silent Night is what I recall the Jesus Loves Me of Christmas music because everybody knows it. But you know, it's White Christmas and the Christmas song that have been recorded more than any other song that I can find. It's very interesting. Um, one more. I think we have time for one more here in the uh, remaining few minutes we have left. Silent Night. Uh, that is the most uh, idyllic, if you will, or maybe most iconic uh, Christmas songs. What is the real story behind that one? For starters, we shouldn't know it. It was a stopgap measure. Uh, a priest, Joseph Moore, was 21 years old. He was getting a, a service ready for Christmas Eve, his first Christmas Eve Mass in a little town in Austria, Obendorf. And he was went to the church to fire up the furnace and get everything warm and cozy and for his choir and his congregation. And then he went over to test the organ, and the organ didn't work. There's all kinds of myths and legends about mice eating the bellows and things like that. It wasn't that. It was just an old organ that had been going out for a while, and it eventually died. He was in a panic because he had based his entire service on music. He ran over to his friend Franz Gruber's house, and he and Gruber got to talking, and Gruber volunteered to play the guitar. And the priest said, it just won't work on the music I've got picked out. And he, Gruber made the suggestion, well, let's write something new. Well, as it turned out, three years before, while visiting an uncle, an 18-year-old Moore had written a poem about Christmas. He had been so overwhelmed through uh, a walk in the woods that he had written this incredible poem. He actually went and found that poem in his desk, brought it back. They set music to it, taught it to the choir that night, and Silent Night, or Stilly Knock, Highly Gay Knock in the original language, became the song that saved Christmas at this little church. Well, we wouldn't know this song today, and it would have probably never been sung again, except a man had to come fix the organ. So in January, when the man came to fix the organ, he said, what did you do for music on Christmas Eve? And uh, the priest played this song for this man. And also, you know, the man copied down the lyrics. The priest gave him uh, additional lyrics that weren't sung that night. And he took this song with him when he left. Thirty years later, the priest is walking along a street in Cologne, Germany, and here's his song that he has not thought of in three decades, basically, being sung at a cathedral. He found out that the man who fixed the organ had become the Johnny Appleseed of Silent Night and taken it everywhere, teaching it to communities all across Europe. As a matter of fact, the song was already being sung now in the United States. The priest had no idea the song for a stopgap measure, Silent Night, would become, at that particular point, the most iconic Christmas carol of all time. I think it points out two things. One, if you get a good idea, you need to write it down. Right. Even if it's a small, short idea, you need to write it down so that you can, you can refer back to it, so that you can have it to share with others. Secondly, if you hear something that's good or see something that inspires you, you need to tell other people about it like the guy who fixed the organ did. Share it with others. It really does, does point out the power of the written word and the power of people to spread the word of important uh, elements of their lives, to signal out the heroes, to signal out particularly blessed works. These, this song came together to do all that and has become the iconic song. By the way, the other thing I love about this story is what is the name of the church in Austria where it was first sung? 
St. Nicholas. Wow. And Ace Collins, we'll have to put a bookmark in uh, this conversation for right now. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow night. Ace Collins, author of the book Best Loved Songs of Christmas. We'll be back up to wrap up Hour 2 after this. Everybody needs a hobby. So what's yours? Resurrection. He's bringing back the American way. It's Steve Dace. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's Just as God gave us the greatest gift in Jesus that first Christmas, we have an opportunity to give our greatest Christmas gift this year when we can bring the gospel to a refugee child. Again, these are children. They are innocents. They are caught in the crosshairs of a humanitarian crisis, of, of, of war, of terrorism. And, and we can reach them right where they're at through our partners at Heart for Lebanon. We can reach children like Maley. Bombs explode. Fathers and brothers are lost to war or kidnapped. Mothers flee with their children to the nearest safe country. For many, that country is Lebanon. 52% of refugees in Lebanon are under the age of 18. This is an overwhelming number. Too many innocent eyes have witnessed horrible things done to their families and friends. The majority of these children have been in Lebanon for several years. They cannot attend local schools. However, they are eager to go back to the classroom and learn. Heart for Lebanon's Children at Risk Initiative is designed to meet their educational, emotional, and spiritual needs. This initiative has three hope centers that provide the much-needed education and love that these children are missing. The hope centers teach basic English, Arabic, and math, but more importantly, teach the love of Jesus Christ. For the first time, they are learning biblical character traits that help them live in community with others. Taking a child from a refugee camp to a classroom in a hope center provides a safe and loving environment where children can learn. After several months of being loved on and cared for, children respond by returning the love and looking forward to each day at the hope center. Many children have asked Jesus Christ to be their savior and have become the light in the midst of darkness to the rest of their family, introducing them to Jesus Christ. For just $98, your one-time gift can reach 18 children just like Maley with the gospel. That's the best $98 you're ever going to spend. Call Heart for Lebanon right now, 844-441-9966. That's 844-441-9966. Or you can go to my website at stevedace.com. Click on the Heart for Lebanon banner right there on my website, D E A C E. At stevedace.com. One more time, that number is 844-441-9966. 
listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Hour number three of the Steve Dace program underway for a Tuesday night. Steve, of course, is out. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. But I know many of you miss Steve when he is uh, gone, of course, on vacation, as is uh, his custom the last couple of weeks of the year, getting some much-deserved R&R. But as I said, a lot of people, uh, a lot of listeners tune in to the Steve Day Show to hear Steve Day. So for tonight, tomorrow night, during Hour 3 of the show, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. Steve is on the preaching team, on the... Uh, preaching pulpit team, I guess, what you, whatever you want to call it, at his local church. And we featured a couple of his messages before. Tonight and tomorrow, we'll feature a few more that we think are particularly applicable to our country, our audience. And tonight we're going to start with a message called, Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. It's from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Here's part one. Now, polls show about 78% of Americans claim they're Christians. That is a lot. Who believes that? Good, because I was going to offer you a two-for-one deal on unicorns out back. That obviously is not true. Now, how do we know it's not true? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we have all kinds of politicians who claim to be Christians, and yet they belong to churches that teach outright heresy. Or they say things that simply aren't Christianity or take positions or stances that are in opposition to Christianity. Use their platforms to make it harder for you and I to be Christians. Finish this sentence. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says, if what? You do not do what I say. Why do you call me Lord if you do not do what I say? Well, Steve, I thought anyone who confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord was saved. Yes. How would we know they have sincerely confessed that with their mouths? By what standard would we know? For example, suppose I decided to confess I modeled Speedos for a living. And I said it a lot. Now, who doesn't know what a Speedo is? They're those ridiculously short shorts swimmers wear so that you know what their position on circumcision that we've been discussing in Galatians is really, right? Okay? Now, suppose I told you I modeled these, although I did none of the work necessary to do what it would take to model them. I've never signed a contract. You've never seen me in any such ad. I would not be caught dead wearing one because I'd probably be dead if anybody saw me in one. Right? Would, would, even though I confessed it, even though I claimed it, am I a modeler of Speedos? No. Let me give you another more practical example. Suppose you're the chairman of the board at Coca-Cola. You hire a CEO. And he says he really loves your product. And he's all about Coca-Cola. 
Yet while he's in charge, the share price of your stock declines. Your sales go down. There's stories in the media that the credibility of your product is diminishing in public. And Pepsi and Dr. Pepper and all your competitors have never done better. Would you keep that person in charge of Coca-Cola? Well, they, really? Well, you're a bunch of intolerant, narrow-minded bigots. They told you, where's the love? You're not supposed to judge. Except you are. Because you know a tree by its what? Fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. So let's do a little fruit inspection here this morning. If you came here from Mars, if you landed here from the planet Mars, or any other planet where there is also not life, but Neil deGrasse Tyson wants there so desperately to be. Suppose you came here from another planet, and you're like, what is this whole Christianity thing about? So you went to what the Muslims call the great Satan, to what we used to be described as a Christian nation. You came to the United States, you thought, you know what, if I want to know, like if, if, if I want to know what a certain brand is really about, I would go to the place where they sell it, where they make it, where they use it a lot, right? I'd want to get testimonials. I'd look in the comments section, see how many five-star or one-star reviews they have. Those are the sorts of due diligences that we would do, right? So I'd come to America, the Christian nation, to find out, because 78% of Americans say they're Christians. So, so what is Christianity then? And so if I came here from another planet, not knowing anything at all, other than I'm going to go to this allegedly Christian nation and they're going to model to me. They're going to be my Speedo models. They're going to model to me what Christianity is. I'd probably come away with the following five conclusions. I want to warn you, this will be painful. Number one, the first conclusion I would come away with is that Christianity is so open-minded, your brains fall out. So open-minded, your brains fall out. You believe nothing. Like the story Pastor Bob had a couple of weeks ago of the gentleman who doesn't believe in Christianity and takes great umbrage at the fact you're telling him he can't be a pastor because he's not a Christian. Stuff like that. Where people get to kind of determine for themselves what Christianity is. I'm always perplexed to see people who hate Christianity. Right now, my Twitter timeline is being bombarded by people who are just completely upset at me because I wrote a column in a national publication that their favorite politician who claims to be a Christian isn't one. And all I did was just made a biblical case. I gave almost none of my own opinion at all. I just used the words of Jesus, the, words of, uh, the word of God. That's all I did to make my case. And I keep answering back to these people, not because I you know, think it's going to be constructive, but because I just can't help sticking my finger in people's eye when they present me the opportunity. It's... My spiritual gift, pray for me, okay? And so I keep asking them, if you hate Christianity so much, why do you want your favorite politician to be a Christian? Why? Why, why would it matter to you if someone you admire, why would you want someone you admire to claim they belong to something you loathe? Why would you want that? Answer, so I can remake what Christianity is in his image, not in the word of God's. That's why. So open-minded, our brains fall out. You're allowed to believe anything you want to believe about Christianity, except for 
Christianity. You can believe anything you want, anything you want at all, except what Christianity actually is. Then you're a bigot. It would seem to be counterintuitive. These are easily refutable arguments. Trust me, I know I do this for a living, and it's called low-lying fruit in my line of work. They, they utter self-refuting arguments. Yet they believe them with all their heart. Why? Because the fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool. We believe what we want to believe, whether it is true or not, because we want to believe it. We suppress the truth in our own unrighteousness. That's what we do. And so I'll believe anything at all about what Christianity is, except what Christianity actually is. Easter is not about a gruesomely beaten, beyond recognition Savior on an old rugged cross, bleeding out for all of us. That's not what it is. It's about acceptance and validation and hippy-dippy, you know what, horse pucky. And that's what they teach. And that's what they want to believe. So if you came here from Mars, you would think, wow, these Christians, I don't see what all the conflict is. It makes no sense to me. They, they claim they believe everything everybody else believes. I got tons of Christians that tell me Muslims and Christians worship the same God, which would be news to the Muslims because when they took over the Dome of Rock at the Crusades there in Jerusalem, they carved into the roof the following words, God has no son. Tell you what, pick any so-called moderate, and there's an oxymoron for you, moderate Arab nation. Show up in Amman, Jordan, the poster child for moderate Arab nations because their queen wears makeup. Show up on the streets of Amman, Jordan, proclaiming Christianity and Muslims worship the same God. I got one word for you, the response you're going to get. Fat wah. And they don't have a second amendment in Jordan. Good luck with that. Christians and Muslims don't worship the same God. One side says God has no son. The other side says Jesus is his only son. Those would seem to be incontrovertible. One side says Jesus died and rose again, proving that he is the savior of the world. The other side said Jesus never even died. But we're all worshiping the same God. How in the world can people who believe incontrovertible facts about who God is, what he expects of us, whether he's a he or exists at all, how can they be on the same side? when they don't believe the same things. That's part one of Steve's message to his local church from a while back. Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. It's from the book of Galatians chapter 5. And we'll be back with part two of his message in just a few moments. You're listening to Steve Dace. Listening to it will make you feel American. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It's the Steve Day Show. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Back to uh, part two of Steve's recent message to his local church. Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. Christianity, if you came here from Mars, you would think Christianity is about being, oh yes, the favorite word of today's 21st century metrosexual culture. It's about being nice. Nice. 
where all our men go to bed at night with their khaki pants, pleated, of course, still on. And they wear socks with sandals year-round. And they've always got that Starbucks cup, Starbucks cup in their hands, ready to be nice, stand for nothing, be a threat to nobody, confront nothing, defend nothing, protect nothing. Just be nice. Just be nice. Because you know what happens when you're just nice? You're not a threat to anybody. You're not even firing a spitball at hell, let alone a bazooka. In fact, they're using you to fire back at the people that you're supposed to be defending and the ideas and concepts that you're supposed to be taking a stand for. How nice was Jesus when he turned over the money changers? How nice was Paul, whom we're reading about here in Galatians, when he looked at a heretic and said, you are a son of the devil. How nice was that, do you think? How nice. Would that, would that meet your diversity training programs at your various places of employment? What would they say to such language? Well, you're not nice. Well, you're going to hell. And I'm trying to do something about that. And when you get to hell, let me tell you something. Hell is a lot of things, ladies and gentlemen. You know what it's not? Nice. Third thing you'd learn about Christianity if you came to America from Mars today and just observed, you would think Christianity is about do-gooderism. It's about do-gooderism. Or what some people like to call today the social gospel. Now let me tell you what this is. This is the idea that you and I can make the world a better place without ever confronting what actually makes this world the terrible place it is in the first place. We never actually confront our own sin, ever. We never look through a mirror darkly, see a murky reflection and think, that, that, I, that's not a good portrait. That's a Dorian Gray. That's a terrible portrait of me. What am I looking at? I'm looking at my own sin. I'm looking everywhere to fix the world except where it needs to start, in my own heart. A London newspaper at the end of the 19th century was doing an expose, or at the beginning of the 20th century, was doing an expose on what is wrong with the world. And they went to several different thinkers, asked them their opinion, and they went to represent the theological view. They went to a man named G.K. Chesterton. And they asked all these thinkers to send back op-eds with your answer. What's wrong with the world? We've got the Industrial Revolution. This is the dawn of the 20th century. We're seeing advancements in human progress. How come the world's not getting any better? What's wrong with the world? And these academics and scientists all wrote these long, protruding essays. Chesterton wrote back with one word. Me. I'm what's wrong with the world. And so are you, and so are you, and so are all of us. We are what is wrong. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have potential to do great things. We do. We are still the Imago Dei. We are still made in God's image. We are still the highest beings of the created order. We can cure diseases. We can, we can invent things that make the world a somewhat better place. But we can't make the world a completely better place because we can't fix what makes the world the place it is on our own. As John just articulated, 
going through communion. That is not our place. We are not up here. We are down here. And until we recognize that, and until we see that the space between the top there and the bottom is a cross, and that's what bridges the gap, we can't make things any better. We're what's wrong. That's not what the average American Christian or the person that's an American who claims to be a Christian believes. If we vote right in the next election, things will get better. If I take this program, things will get better. If I switch churches, things will get better. If I switch spouses, things will get better. If I have kids, things will get better. If I don't, things will get better. Except we're looking at everything other than what? Ourselves. Our own, what's going on in our own hearts. Here's the fourth thing you would learn if you came here from Mars. Christianity is about materialism. Jesus suffered and died so Joel Osteen could have a $10 million mansion. So Creflo Dollar could say, give me money. The jet you previously bought me is outdated and I need a new one now. That's what it's about. And it's about what's going on out here, cleaning the outside of the cup, not what's going on in here. We build all these suburban palaces all over America, their own little strip malls. You can even stop by for a cafe lunch and a cappuccino if you want. Yet, the middle of the week when your life's falling apart, that's not the sanctuary that you can go to. They're not keeping business hours then. And people just drive by. There's no cross there's nothing on this building that would indicate something profound is happening here. And so when you're in your car and that cell phone rings and you got that terrible news and you're breaking down and you're crying, you just drive right back to that suburban palace. Even though a bunch of you lined your cars out there at Easter for their 48 services. Except later in the year, when you really need somebody and your life's falling apart, out of sight, out of mind, man. You're not paying it any mind. Because you just went to an event. You wanted to feel emotionally connected to something. But there's nothing that actually you sense that can transform your life happening there. But man, if you were a pastor and you drove by that building, you thought, well, I wish my building was like that. Wish we had one of those. And that doesn't mean every one of those places where they build those things, there's not life transformation taking place. There is. There's plenty of them where that is actually happening. But they're not the ones that when you drive by, you think, is that a church or a car dealership? I can't tell. Which one is it? You know. You know. And they want you to know. We're listening to selections of Steve Dace's message to his local church. Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. It's from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, focused on verses 7 through 12. We like to do this, especially when Steve is out because I know a number of you student tune in to the Steve Day Show to listen to Steve Day. So even when he's gone, this is an opportunity for us uh, to be able to make that happen. We'll come back and uh, hear from uh, part three of this message when we return here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network.
listening to Steve Dace. Want your country back? Keep listening for instructions. This is Steve Dace. And welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This hour, listening to a sermon Steve preached to his local church called Christianity is Not What Most Americans Think It Is. Here's part three. Paul shows us that Christianity is really five things that are completely counter to what the average American thinks Christianity is. So I'm saying there's a chance. Number one. Christianity is a narrow road. It is a narrow road. It is not a broad road. Broad would mean this. It is this. There is only one shepherd and a lot of sheep. And his sheep hear his voice. It is not out here. This is the road, broad is the road to what? Destruction. This is the road, and it leads to a very narrow gate. A very narrow gate. And there's only one way in. Now, I think, I take comfort in that. Because that makes it simple. That cuts through all the confusion. I had a, a broadcast friend of mine come to me several years ago who was, who was kind of tiptoeing around the edges of becoming a believer. And he said, do you really think Christianity is the only way? And I walked him through three or four or five other religions and just sort of generically what they taught by bullet point and how confusing all that was and how there's no way to reconcile all of that. There's really no way to know. There's no way to navigate Hinduism and Buddhism. Buddhists are de facto atheists. Hindus have about 38,000 gods. Muslims don't know what their God wants. He changes his mind all throughout the Quran. And then at the end, it's like, hey, Bobo, smarter than the average bear. I don't know, you know. I can go to Mecca 50 times. I don't know if that's good enough. How do you reconcile that? Your head would explode trying to figure all that out. And God simply says, you know what? Let's remove all of that clutter. We're going to make it real simple. Now, I didn't say easy. We're going to make it real simple. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is what he did for you that you deserve. And then we rolled a stone away and the grave was empty, proving again, I'm telling you the truth. And then one last thing, if that doesn't do it for you, look at how the lives of the people who have believed this before you came along were changed because of that. Starting with 12 apostles, many of them who read, who, who fled, who ran, afraid, who were so gutless, these men were so gutless, that when they hid out after the crucifixion, they sent the women. The women went, because they were too gutless to come out in public. The women visited the grave. The women went to be witnesses. And now all of a sudden, these are guys standing up in front of an entire community saying, you've killed your own Messiah. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Turn or burn, that's the message. Turn or burn. How does that happen? How does that happen? That's the only way. Now, 
You can have all these other ways, and you can navigate that until your head explodes, or you can say, God has made it really simple for me. God loves me so much that he can't make it any simpler that he came and became a human. One of us, Emmanuel, God with us, so that we would know. Yes, that's a narrow road, but it's also a simple one. It's up to you whether you choose to complicate it or not. But that's a you problem, not a him problem. Number two, Christianity is judgmental. You bet your sweet bippy it is. Got an entire book in the Bible called what, folks? Judges. Which would mean they did some what? Judging. Right? End of the Bible. What do we see? Judgment. The question is, is it a righteous one? That's the question. Is everybody held to the same standard? Or do some people, because they're of a certain skin color, or they have a certain station in life, or they, have, they came from a certain, uh, they, they won the lucky sperm club and come from a rich family of nobility, do they get something the rest of us don't get? Or do we make it harder on them because of those things? Or is everybody treated the same? Is everybody, has God no respecter of persons, and everybody has the same opportunity to be saved? Everybody's judged by the same standard. By a righteous judge who is immutable, irrefutable, incontrovertible throughout space and time. Which is it? We'll be back with segment four of Steve's message. Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. We'll have more in just a moment on the Steve Days Show. Not concerned about what you think, but why you think it. Steve Dace. Back on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Segment four of Steve's message: Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. Number three: Christianity is confrontational. I communicate for a living. If you know of a nice way to tell people and a non-confrontational way to tell people that they are going to hell, in fact, they desire it, they want it, and left on their own, they will do nothing to seek anything other than the highway to hell. Unless they believe and follow this one truth and follow this one narrow road, do you know of a non-offensive way to communicate that? By all means, please tell me. I would make a much better living if there was. I just don't know of one. How offensive and confrontational is Christianity? They took a savior who came as a sacrificial lamb and they nailed him to that. You know, it's funny, is the same people that say, well, I don't think Jesus would, wouldn't, I think Jesus would bake a cake for a gay wedding. Really? Then, then why was he nailed to one of those? Anybody? If, if Jesus was going to accommodate everybody, and there weren't going to be any distinctions drawn, no lines drawn, 
No confrontations to speak of. Why was he nailed to one of those? Because they didn't have a high enough mandatory minimum wage. Why was he nailed to one of those? And above him and above his head, what did it say? What did it say? King of the Jews, meaning this man claims to represent an authority higher than us. An authority over us. He's a seditionist. He's claiming there is power greater than Rome, greater than the state, greater than the human government. They recognized what he was doing. He was confronting them. That's why they nailed him up there. Do you make anybody uncomfortable? Anybody that's doing bad stuff, that used to be around you a lot, doesn't want to return your calls? No? I might look in the mirror. Because if you don't unsettle at least somebody around you, that means they don't view you as a threat. As a threat to their sin, to their fallen state, a reminder that they're not good on their own. They wouldn't nail you to one of these. And you're supposed to pick up one of these and follow after him. Number four, Christianity is offensive, as we just articulated. Those two really go together. Because it's confrontational, it is offensive. Paul wrote that Christianity was foolish to the Greek. Now, why was it foolish to the Greek? Well, because they were the people of knowledge. It can't be that simple, the Greeks thought. It just can't be. Look, we've got this team, we've got this temple here on Mars Hill with all these gods, and we're so open-minded, our brains fall out, we even made a banner to an unknown god, just in case we forgot one. It can't be just this simple. But it's also offensive to the Jews. And what Paul meant that was the was the religious context of the, the current legalistic authority of the day. Because what Jesus said to all of them is, all of your memorization, all of your flowing gowns, your temple, all of it means nothing without me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what Jesus is saying to them is, the Jews referred to the Torah as the way. He is saying to them, I am your Torah. I am your creation. I am your law. I am your prophets. I am your Psalms. I'm everything you people were set aside to be. I am the fulfillment of all of that. That's offensive. You're telling a self-righteous group of people that all the efforts they've made to get on the sin master and work off a few, not good enough. Not good enough at all. In fact, they can know it all, learn it all, still not good enough. That's an offensive message. And finally, Christianity is about real love. Because love knows no greater man than this. And a man would lay down his life for his friends. Except when he did that, were we his friends? No. We were his enemy. And he did that for us anyway. That great scene in the Passion when the androgynous Satan is saying to Jesus, they won't care. They're not worth it. You shouldn't do this for them. 
And he never acknowledges him the entire time, or her, until finally he accepts the cup of wrath from his father. And he gets up, and you see him glance over and crush the head of that serpent. A fulfillment of prophecy going back to Genesis. Love has no greater man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. That is real love. That is real love. So yes, on one hand we say, that is evil. That is wrong. That's what we say. We, we hold up a finger and say, point of order, that's wrong, that's evil. But then over here, we extend a hand out and say, but there is mercy and grace for that. And therefore, by the grace of God, go I. That I deserve that every bit as much as you do. And the only difference between you and me is I recognize what that means. And you can recognize it too. That's real love. If you knew the cure for a devastating disease and didn't share it with everybody else, is that love? Is there more devastating disease than our own sin that estranges us from God? For all of eternity. Is there a more devastating disease than that? Is there a more contagious disease than that? Five ways, as the Apostle Paul lines out, Christianity is not what you think it is, or at least as Steve Dace is putting it in this message to his local church, Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. We'll return with the conclusion of tonight's show and the conclusion of this message next. Listening to Steve Dace. Right versus wrong, not right versus left. This is Steve Dace. And back to wrap up the show tonight and to conclude the uh, message that we've uh, heard Steve Dace preach to his home church, Christianity is not what most Americans think it is. What we need to do with the country we're living in is get back in the disciple-making business. And I quoted Vince Lombardi for you earlier. That means we've got to make it simple. When Lombardi took over the Green Bay Packers, not since their founder, Curly Lambeau, had been the coach, were they a winner. They were an awful franchise. The culture was rotten. He watched all of the film of the team's previous season and thought, it's not just that these guys are bad. It's just they expect to lose. And he could find the minute a game went the wrong way, he could tell. They were done. They had no resolve. The culture there was one of losing. So he famously walked into his very first practice at Green, as Green Bay Packers coach. A team is assembled there, including many of the players that would go on to be great players, names like Bart Starr that are household names and in the Hall of Fame now. And he walked in and said, Men, I've watched all your film, and I burned it. None of that's happened. We're going to start all over again. We're going to rebuild the culture of this team. You're going to expect to win, not think, not hope. You will expect to win. 
And we're going to start over from square one. And he grabbed a football. And he stood up before the team and he said, Men, this is a football. And he started all over again. And he tore them down to build them back up. What we need to do to the culture we're living in. Some of you still have books. Maybe you have one of these. And you need to stand up and say, forget about political parties, elections, debates, culture wars, all that other stuff, all that other baggage you bring into the arena, flush it. We're going to start all over again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. That's what we have to do. That's how we have to start. Hit the Control-Alt-Delete button. Forget about what John Winthrop wrote in 1650. Your kids don't know that. They didn't study it anyway. It's not about recovering a legacy. They have had that taken away. You're going to have to build one. This is a Bible. Let's start there. This is the Word of God. Let's start with that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And though it is disheartening to see the culture our forefathers built here taken away, help us to remember those that are doing it. They know not what they do. Help us to have the same mercy that our Savior had for us at the cross, but also the same courage of conviction to shine our lights in the darkness and give us the faith to persevere. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we hope you enjoyed hearing that sermon from Steve Dace. Until tomorrow's show, Micah 6-8. You're listening to Steve Dace.